Hello and welcome to Asia Stream, where we track, report, and analyze the issues and interests of the world's largest region. I am Jack Stone Truitt, Nikkei Asia business and markets reporter here in New York City. Our digital editor, Waj Han, is on assignment this week, so I'll be playing the role of host for today's episode as we say lights, camera, action, and head to the movies. Will Smith's slap heard around the world has defined this year's Academy Awards, better known as the Oscars, but a look beyond the shock and awe of that moment reveals a bigger story going on in Hollywood. The rise of streaming has upended the traditional model for on-screen entertainment, a shift the pandemic put into overdrive. First, streamers like Netflix began to dominate the world of television, then established tech giants like Apple and Amazon jumped into the mix, followed by the big media studios like Disney launching streaming platforms of their own. More recently, they've all come for the movies. In recent years, it has been Netflix which has come closest to finally winning that elusive Best Picture Oscar for an original movie, as the company threw money to get star directors on their platform. Alfonso Cuarón's Roma, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, and this year, Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, all naked attempts to snag the Oscar, all falling short at the finish line. Instead, it was Apple that broke the Best Picture barrier first with this year's winner, indie darling Coda, giving the world's most valuable company one more notch in its belt and putting Hollywood studios even further on their heels after years of a declining traditional business model. But it's not just economics that the Oscars are struggling with, it's also their haphazard attempts at global appeal. The development of streaming has coincided with the rise of a truly global movie-going audience. Streaming platforms have expanded access to entertainment like never before. A foreign language film or TV show can become a sensation in America more easily than ever. And political concerns in China can help shape blockbuster scripts seeking to cash in on the world's largest market. But the Oscars, despite high-profile attempts to diversify their makeup, have long struggled with the global aspect of cinema. On today's show, we will discuss the state of the Oscars as they relate, or rather don't, to international film, and Asian cinema in particular. And then we will take a deep dive into the rich cultural impact of Japanese cinema over the last century. It's a star-studded show, so grab your popcorn. You're listening to The Sound of Asia, streaming in your ear. From Nikkei Asia, this is Asia Stream. From the Dolby Theater, it's the Oscars, starring Halle Bailey. Here in the studio is Asia Stream correspondent Monica Hunter-Hart to discuss some of the ceremony's most notable moments. Monica, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. By now, we've all seen the infamous slap countless times, but the 94th Academy Awards also had some major moments for Asian cinema. They did. First and foremost, Drive My Car became just the second Japanese movie to win the Oscar for Best International Film, and the first to be nominated for the biggest award of the night, Best Picture. It seems in recent years there's been quite the influx of Asian winners and nominees, no? Well, of course, you have Parasite winning Best Picture in 2020, the first non-English language film to do so. It also won Best Director for Bong Joon-ho. Last year, China's Chloe Zhao won Best Director for Nomadland, which also won Best Picture. Those awards also saw Minari, a drama about a South Korean family in America, get a supporting actress win for South Korea's Yoon Yo-jung, who also presented this year, and a Best Actor nomination for Korean actor Steven Yoon. 
Has this been a correction of some sort for the past? Yeah, well, recall the Oscar So White campaign back in 2016. It was over the lack of diversity both in the nominees and also in the Academy voting body itself. Well, I'm here at the Academy Awards, uh, otherwise known as the uh, White People's Choice Awards. Changes were made to expand the voting body, so it's possible that recent trends of more diverse winners reflect the new group of voters. But I take it that's hardly been the norm for Asian filmmakers at the awards? Correct. Historically, there's been some exceptions, like Taiwan's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and its director Ong Lee winning multiple Oscars in 2000. But the overwhelming majority of nominees have always been from the United States. Right. To be clear, the Oscars are an American production. It's run by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, based in Los Angeles, made up of mostly American industry professionals. They were actually created in the 1920s in part to boost the struggling domestic film market. I sense a but coming on? Well, they don't market themselves as just an American awards show. The language on the Academy website says nothing about focusing on the U.S. In fact, it calls itself, quote, the world's preeminent movie-related organization for, quote, fans around the world whose job is to, quote, connect the world through the medium of motion pictures. They describe an Oscar as the, quote, highest honor in filmmaking. But in reality, it's more like the highest honor in American filmmaking. Exactly. Like how the World Series in baseball doesn't include any Japanese or Latin American teams, even though the sport is played there. Look at the stats. There have only ever been 14 non-English language movies nominated for Best Picture, and just three of those were from Asia. Parasite, the first to actually win, Drive My Car this year, and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in 2000. Well, what about someone who says that this is what the foreign language film category, now called just international film, is for? So yeah, that is what it's for. But there's a clear Western bias in the Academy's international selection. Over 80% of the winners have come from Europe. There are also tough entry barriers for films to be nominated in this category. Movies need to have been shown for seven consecutive days in American theaters for paid admission. That's a tough gig for, say, an independent Iranian movie. And countries are only allowed to submit one single movie for consideration. How does that process work? The Academy's rules governing the process are pretty vague. Sometimes it's governments who are effectively exerting control. Governments aren't exactly ideal movie critics. Right, especially in countries where filmmakers have been jailed for creating subversive work, as they have in some places. You can see the impact of this soft power pressure in some of China's recent submissions, which have been increasingly nationalistic. Take the film it submitted in 2017, Wolf Warrior 2, which had the tagline, and I quote, Anyone who offends China will be killed, no matter how far the target is. Wow. Uh, Well, I suppose it's called an Oscar campaign for a reason. Precisely. I spoke with NYU professor and veteran film studio executive Joe Piccarello about this. He told me Oscar campaigns are a lot like political campaigns. What has developed now is a whole cottage industry of Oscar campaign consultants, just like political campaigns have consultants. You need a lot of resources to compete at uh, an Oscar campaigns. I mean, you have the budgeting to market films, which can run millions of dollars, millions of dollars. And then on top of that, you have to have ads in Variety, in The Hollywood Reporter. You have to have internet ads, online ads. Foreign films just don't show up in the United States. They have to be affiliated with a U.S. distributor. What's interesting this year is Drive My Car actually was affiliated with a very uh, small, um, long time, but very small independent film distributor. It didn't have anywhere near the expense of lavish campaign. 
that all these other films had, but yet it managed to, on I guess on the strength of its creative prowess, managed to get in there. So based on what Piccarello said, even though Drive My Car's success represents more recognition for Asian films by the Academy, it's also a bit of an exception? That's right. There was also a bit of a controversy around the acceptance speech given by Drive My Car's director, Diyusuke Hamaguchi. Many folks who watched it were angry because he was interrupted by the playoff music pretty early. Winners are supposed to be allowed at least 45 seconds, and producers often give the winners of the biggest categories more time. Any guesses when they cut off Hamaguchi? Oof, uh, 10 seconds. Okay, no, it wasn't that bad, but it was 28 seconds in. Let's listen to it. Thank you very much. Oh, you are the Oscar. (laughs) Hold on. Yeah. I'd like to thank all the members of the Academy for having us here. And... I'd like to thank Janus Films, SciShow, Warner Media 150, and Cinetic for bringing Drive My Car to United States. Thank you very much. And I also would like to... Given their historic lack of recognition by the Academy, we're going to have you give us a deeper look into Asian cinema, Monica, including its history with a focus on Japan, But before I go, I'll give a tip of the cap to the breadth of Asian cinema, including the most prolific one in the entire world, the Hindi cinema of Bollywood, based in Mumbai, which is a movie universe unto itself, but one that is hardly recognized by the Oscars. Slumdog Millionaire, which incorporated Bollywood elements, won Best Picture in 2009, but was actually a British, not Indian film. Further west, Iran's Asghar Farhadi has won two Best Foreign Language Film Oscars for his movies A Separation and The Salesman. Hong Kong has a long lineage of innovation when it comes to action movies, giving us stars like Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan. But today, the action crown may belong somewhere to the southeast, where stars like Thailand's Tony Jaa have been cast in the Fast and Furious franchise, and Indonesian hit The Raid have greatly influenced American action movies like the John Wick franchise. Even the Hermit Kingdom of North Korea has a film industry, albeit an insular one that first and foremost is meant to elevate the ruling party ahead of any artistic aspirations. But it just goes to show how much of the world of film exists beyond the bright lights of Hollywood and that golden little Oscar statue. All right, Monica, take it away. Thanks, Jack. I'll just say off the bat that we've given ourselves a bit of an impossible task today by trying to do any sort of survey of Asian cinema in one episode. We can't do it all. So we're going to focus on Japan in honor of Drive My Car, and also bring in China, including its territories, South Korea, and India. And we've asked a bunch of experts to guide our way. Without further ado, let's trek to Tokyo. Comparative to a lot of other East Asian and Asian countries, Japan was a relative early adopter. To motion pictures. So as early as the 1910s, there's a vibrant filmmaking scene that exists. That's Robert Busher, board chair of the Philadelphia Asian American Film Festival and a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania. He talked to me about how, from the very beginning of Japanese filmmaking, there were two main genres, historic period dramas, often about samurai, and dramas set in the modern day. The films that people did have an appetite for abroad tended to be the historical, the, the traditional, the period dramas, uh, the, the films that were being shot on location in, in the historic shrines and temples, um, the elements of traditional Japanese culture that I think had been popularized in the West uh, through some of this 
somewhat orientalizing literature and, and stage play. Busher described one early and fascinating figure who was a true international star, a Japanese immigrant who came to the U.S. in the 1910s and became a Hollywood sensation in silent films. His name was Seshu Hayakawa. He was one of American cinema's first sex symbols and one of the most highly paid actors in Hollywood. Hayakawa's claim to fame is that in 1915, the same year that Birth of a Nation came out, um, he actually starred in a film called The Cheat, where he had the very first interracial on-screen kiss with a white actress named Fanny Ward. This is 1915. Now, that interracial kiss wasn't exactly part of a romantic storyline, and Busher says that Hayakawa's character upheld many racial stereotypes, but it also challenged some of them. One of the really fascinating things about Hayakawa's stardom is that, you know, from the post-World War II era onwards, we sort of see the emasculation and demasculation of Asian men on, on screen in Hollywood cinema, and it was completely the opposite. When we look at Hayakawa, he was legitimately the first male sex symbol in Hollywood. And, you know, take take that as you will, because I think there certainly were stereotypes, both good and bad, associated with Asian masculinity. But let's go back to Japan itself. As Busher explained, it had a rich film scene before the Second World War. But unfortunately, most of those movies were lost or destroyed during the war. Afterwards, Japan faced a seven-year American occupation— and with that came American censorship of its movie industry. Several experts we spoke to noted the irony that Japan's movie making had been censored by the imperial government before the war, and then just moved on to a new form of censorship after. Akira Kurosawa became one of the occupation's most favored filmmakers. Akira Kurosawa. To this day, he's one of the most famous Japanese directors. Kurosawa emerges from the post-war occupation as someone who I think played the game with the occupation authorities. Um, he, in some of his films, he very much touts the sort of party line. What's most fascinating to me about that whole period is that it is Kurosawa who emerges on the global stage as this kind of uh, emblem of post-war Japanese intellectualism, art and modernity, as well as a, a somewhat palatable Western filmmaker. And, you know, really in 1950 with his film Rashomon, this is the sort of breakthrough stage on a world scale when we see Japanese cinema being uh, perceived by, by really anyone who was involved in cinema at the time as something that was worth paying attention to. Rashomon is one of those period dramas Busher mentioned earlier. It's the story of a samurai who was murdered in the woods, his wife who was raped, and a bandit who admits to the crimes. The plot unfolds through the characters taking turns telling their sides of the story, which seem to involve lies and half-truths. This storytelling device became influential and has been used in countless films since. It's known as the Rashomon effect. Here's Karim Yassar, assistant professor of East Asian languages and cultures at the University of Southern California. That was the first Japanese film to win an Academy Award. At that time, they didn't have regular Academy Awards for foreign films. They had honorary Academy Awards, which already tells you just how, in what high or not so high regard, Hollywood perhaps uh, held foreign film production. But, uh, you know, that film was, was really kind of the first to break through on the international stage. 
Rashomon heralded the beginning of the Japanese Golden Age of Film, which took place in the 50s and 60s. Yasar says that what really put an end to it was the popularization of television. People were less likely to want to leave their homes to spend money at the cinema. Once you get into the 70s, uh, the, the economic circumstances of the studios become really quite dire. And so many of them have to turn to various kinds of B-grade genres in order to um, turn a profit, basically. I mean, even just to stay in business, they have to make sort of softcore erotica. They have to make, uh, you know, kind of Yakuza films on the cheap, samurai films on the cheap. And uh, it's, it's really kind of a, a low point uh, in the 1970s. In the 1980s, with the bubble economy, there's a lot of money sloshing around. Um, and so there's a little bit of a resurgence there in the 1980s with directors like Itami Juzo. It's really only in the mid-1990s, I think, though, that Japanese cinema kind of reemerges on the world stage, starts winning awards at international film festivals again, and that inaugurates what might be considered not a second golden age, but um, perhaps a silver age, maybe a bronze age. One of the interesting things about the modern Japanese film industry is that it's very insular. Aaron Giroux, a Yale professor who's an expert in East Asian cinema, explains that this is a result of something called the production committee system. A movie isn't made by a single film company. It's collaborated on by many, sometimes a dozen companies, many of which have nothing to do with film at all. They're making movies with TV studios, uh, with newspaper companies, uh, sometimes even like cosmetics companies. Uh, there's a logic behind that. It's a way of making bigger budget films while spreading around the risk. Uh, so it makes a lot of economic sense. Uh, it's a very interesting and fascinating uh, media synergy. Uh, but it also means that one of the reasons that Japanese films are successful is because uh, the film is advertised on the TV company, which is advertised in the newspaper. There's a there's a, a kind of inward looking collaboration, which really does very well in the Japan market, but it doesn't necessarily help abroad. And there are lots of reports that you have 30 people looking over the script of the film and all making comments on it, which is not always the best way to make films, uh, especially artistic films or, or films that could uh, challenge the viewer or uh, excite people at foreign film festivals. You know the Galapagos Islands, which are famous for being so isolated that the species there evolved on their own in unique ways? That actually has metaphorical relevance here. There is a term in Japan called uh, Galapagos Ka, uh, where various industries uh, are basically just making films or making products just for the internal market and evolving their own very peculiar forms like on the Galapagos Islands. Uh, and some people are charging the Japanese film industry with doing that. It's doing well, but it's never going to be communicating outside Japan because it's just developed its own peculiar internal way of doing things. Drive My Car is very much a film that's unrepresentative of that kind of system. It was made outside it. It was made by uh, independent production companies. 
It's important to emphasize that Japan's insulated system has been very successful within the country. It really is one of the most successful uh, kind of non-Hollywood industries in the world. It's one of the few countries that beats Hollywood in the domestic market, and it's done it pretty consistently for the last 15 years. And one of the things about the Japanese film market is that it's big enough that you can make films which are decently sized budgets uh, and make a profit. Uh, that's one big thing that's different from the Korean film industry because Korea just has a smaller population. It's very different from the Hong Kong film industry. Uh, in some ways, one of the reasons Hong Kong became so successful and now uh, the Korean film industry is becoming successful abroad is because they didn't have a big enough domestic market. So they always thought about, well, how do we sell abroad? On to Hong Kong. Before you get a chance to fight with me, you must observe our rules and beat these two swordsmen first. It's a commercially driven, you know, industry in Hong Kong very much. They found out that, you know, action sold worldwide. That's Scarlett Chang, film critic and adjunct professor at Otis College of Art and Design in L.A. and Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. There was a martial arts height in the 60s, and then there was another revival in the 90s in Hong Kong. Hong Kong films gave us uh, this type of action, which we now take for granted. Um, and it's um, not completely realistic, uh, but a lot more uh, choreographed, a lot more uh, spectacular to watch than what action was before. So spectacular that Quentin Tarantino was a big fan of Hong Kong action films. Uh, the Warshawskis used Yuan Huoping in uh, the Matrix series. Yuan Huoping is a, a Hong Kong action uh, director, choreographer. So the, the uh, lingo of Hong Kong action has now permeated uh, much of action films today. Although Hong Kong is still putting out some excellent films, Chang says the industry is in somewhat dire straits right now because of censorship imposed by the mainland. It's not a good environment uh, to produce, you know, creative, groundbreaking films. It's very political to make feature films in, in um, China and Hong Kong. They're under a microscope. As far as the mainland goes, its sort of film golden age happened in the 80s and 90s. It was led by a group called the Fifth Generation Filmmakers. They were the first class to be accepted into the Beijing Film Academy after the Cultural Revolution. Here's Karim Yassar again. They were the first filmmakers in mainland China, I think, who really got the kind of international recognition um, that for example, the Japanese filmmakers had had enjoyed uh, in the 1950s and 60s. But it wasn't just in mainland China. For whatever reason or reasons, it was happening at the same time in Hong Kong and in Taiwan. And so it was a very special moment. You know, it was sort of the unleashing of a lot of pent-up creative energy. If we're talking about mainland China, probably the film that made the biggest splash was Farewell, My Concubine. That really just captured the world's attention. That was a 1993 romantic drama by Chen Kai-ge, one of those fifth-generation directors. 
but arguably the biggest smash hit ever in Sinophone film was made in Taiwan and came a bit later, 2000's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It was nominated for 10 Oscars and won four. To this day, 22 years later, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon has had the biggest box office of any foreign language film in the domestic United States market. It's really a wonderful uh, standing in two worlds or two genres sort of piece because it's both a martial arts film, but also a drama. The drama is about the, the social world uh, of the times uh, in China and, and the restrictions that are placed on women in particular. Now, remember Crouching Tiger, the two leads are really women, you know, played by um, Michelle Yeoh and Zhang Ziyi and a younger one and an older one. And their differences and um, their conflicts within themselves and with each other really drives that movie, and which is why it is a great movie. Another enormous landmark in modern East Asian cinema is, of course, Parasite's Oscar win in 2020. And the Oscar goes to Parasite. It's a dark comedy, uh, you know, set in Korea, made by a Korean filmmaker. It's also a critique of materialism and, you know, modern consumer society. Many people, not everybody, but many people could relate to it. Here's Karim Yassar again. For Korean cinema, you have, I think, the rise of directors like uh, Bong Joon-ho, who are, you know, working with popular genres and making new kinds of hybrid popular genres. Um, his film, The Host, which appeared in 2006, was, I think, a major uh, turning point for Korean cinema. The success of Korean cinema during this period has been a function of its ability, of the filmmaker's ability to take the conventions of Hollywood and make them their own. Not to imitate them in any kind of slavish fashion, but rather to rework them, rethink them, re-energize them. It's been a winning formula. Of course, we'd be extremely remiss if we didn't talk about India, home of Bollywood, the biggest film industry in the world. It's like two, two sets of cinema in India, the serious cinema and the popular cinema. And both have big audiences. But the main one is popular cinema still. That's Aruna Vasudev, who's been called the mother of Asian cinema for her work promoting festivals and founding the magazine Cinemaya. She talks about how the growth of film festivals within India in the late 80s was a turning point. India is such a big country with 15, 20 states with their own very highly developed language, literature, music. Those films were not seen in other parts of India. Because if it's a film from Kerala, in Delhi, we don't understand uh, the language, so it was not possible. But with this start and the start of film festivals all over India, they were subtitled in English and uh, shown in other all over the country. It was a wonderful uh, opening up of India to Indians and uh, the world to India. Another crucial development, she says, was the era of India's new wave cinema. It's often called parallel cinema because it developed in parallel to, rather than as a part of, mainstream movie offerings. 
Parallel cinema was a bit more spread out across the decades than, for example, the new wave movement of France. It was pretty much happening in some form from the late 40s all the way to the early 90s. But Vasudev emphasizes the period from the 70s onwards. It was fantastic. These young uh, directors who were graduates from the film school in India, in Pune, they started making films. Kumar, Shahani, Manikol. So that was a lot of history, and really we were just scratching the surface. But what's coming next? I asked Sophia Wong Baccio, founder and curator of the film festival Asian Pop-Up Cinema, what trends she's noticing in Asian cinema today. More films are addressing loneliness, isolation, socially disconnected, psychological uh, 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 affecting people's mind. And then there's a big direction of people turning sci-fi. You know, a lot of sci-fi film also coming from Asia. Almost like they need that escape. One trend on the talent side uh, from Asia, a lot of boys band <laughs> turning into actors. She says there's been a growth of festivals in many places. Within China now, every city has their own international film festival. <laughs> they were competitive. That means if you are on the creative side, you have more chances to show your film. But fair enough, it's not easy like anything else because over there you're competing with one billion people, right? <laughs> and out of one billion people, sure enough, there are a lot of passionate filmmakers too, right? Wang Baccio emphasizes that Asian cinema has gotten a lot more attention in the West in recent years. 2018, we got the crazy rich Asians and then Parasite, uh, that was significant. That's historical. That's phenomenal. Oh, don't forget Netflix. Netflix and all these prime streaming uh, home channels that you can view from home is churning out long-stop Asian content. All in all, the pool, I feel like we have a bigger pool and more, more content to play now and more possibilities. But what about those pesky Oscars? Have they been neglecting Asian films? Scarlett Chang says no. No, it's not that they're neglected. It's that we don't see enough of them here in this country. Um, and, you know, there's all these people who don't like to see films in, uh, with subtitles. You know, that's been an ongoing problem. <laughs> Frankly, uh, it's a membership body. They get to set the rules. Why do we think that the Academy Awards are supposed to be some kind of international, worldwide um, forum? I mean, it isn't it, it de facto, but it isn't, you know, in, in point of fact, it's a club. I mean, obviously, the Oscars are a ceremony that uh, has been designed from the beginning to celebrate Hollywood. Uh, it's there to celebrate the American film industry. Uh, and even now, if it accepts uh, or celebrates some international films, that ultimately is supposed to come down to, hey, we in Hollywood are international and we can celebrate uh, people of color or people of other uh, uh, nations. Um, so there is something self-serving even in its international dimensions. And of course, the Oscars are far from the only metric that gauges how much Asian cinema is being recognized on the world stage. For one thing, there are many other major world film festivals. 
The most well-known launching pads for international films are Cannes in France, Berlin, and Venice. And streaming companies also play a big role in all of this, as well as distribution companies. Here's Karim Yassar again. I've translated over 100 Japanese films for the Criterion Collection. And they have many more Japanese films than that streaming on their channel. Hundreds of Japanese films. If you count the number of Asian films, other Asian films, the number of Chinese films or Korean films that have gotten the Criterion treatment, it's a fraction of the number that Japanese films have gotten. Now, that's just one index, right? That's just one company, but it is a prestige label. It's known for, you know, curating the best films in the world, um, supposedly. And so for Japan to have this incredibly lopsided representation, I think is a, is a pretty good indicator of the degree to which non-Japanese East Asian cinema has been, um, I think, neglected. One question I asked many of the experts we spoke to was, are the Oscars even relevant to Asian cinema? There's an argument for no. Whether or not Asian cinema has ever looked at it as something they depend on, I doubt it. Because they have never had it before. They were still being successful on their own. Having an Oscar is just a bonus. And there's an argument for yes. It is true that uh, the Oscars have been very, very helpful for cinemas abroad uh, as a way of defining themselves. In the 1950s, winning Oscars was one way of Japanese filmmakers who, and you have to remember that Japan even though it sparked uh, a world war, uh, was, especially on the cultural realm, suffering a kind of inferiority complex. You know, When Hollywood then gives the Japanese filmmakers awards, that was one way that the Japanese film industry gained confidence and uh, achieved a, a next level. Uh, so there is a kind of, even though it's kind of ironic, <coughs> in some ways it's kind of unfortunate, but... <coughs> There is a kind of international purpose, a reason, uh, a role that the Academy Awards can play. Awards nominations and Oscar nominations, besides um, recognizing artistic achievement, are uh, designed to help uh, build box office. Like for Parasite, you will see, which was pre-pandemic, it did almost twice its box office return after getting nominated than before it was uh, nominated for uh, a variety of Oscar nominations. It will be a while, if ever, that the uh, Academy can really uh, not just expand, you know, people of color in its voting body, uh, uh, but actually start being able to accommodate the many, many different kinds, the true diversity of filmmaking uh, that exists in the world. Overall, everyone agrees that the Academy has made a lot of changes in recent years and is more international than it used to be. Drive My Car's win is evidence of that. But we here at Asia Stream feel that if the Academy does want to become representative of the best the world's filmmaking has to offer, then there's still further to go. That was Monica Hunter-Hart. On Friday, Will Smith announced his resignation from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. That's a wrap here on the set of this week's Asia Stream. 
As always, we encourage you to head to Nikkei Asia at asia.nikkei.com for more in-depth coverage of Asian film and all things related to Asia. If you enjoy this podcast, please share, subscribe, and leave us a hopefully five-star review. And a reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. Just type in the code ASIASTREAM, that's all caps, no spaces, at checkout when you visit asia.nikkei.com. This episode was produced by Monica Hunter Hart, Waj Han, and myself. I'm your host, at least for this week, Jack Stone Truitt. Please join our stream world again next week. And...